You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Can you make $90,000 a year and still be a slave? Does the 13th Amendment help you in that case? We'll find out from Michael Vorenberg, author of Final Freedom, Civil War, the Abolition of Slavery, and the 13th Amendment, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Do you like to save money? Let me tell you about a website, Target Barter. Instead of buying things for cash, you trade things you have for things you want. It's as close as you can come to getting something for free. Target Barter has dozens of categories, thousands of things. Jewelry, beauty products, perfume, electronics, computers, and much more. Why pay cash for something you want when you can probably find it on Target Barter? But it's not buying, it's Target Barter trading. List things you have to trade and earn Target dollars. Use your Target dollars to trade for things you want. It's easy, it's fun, and it's not expensive. Before my family spends cash on anything, we check Target Barter. Target Barter is not an auction. You don't bid against anybody. You see it, you like it, you click on it, you buy it. But not for cash. For Target Barter trade dollars. Go to the website. They walk you through the entire process. So what are you waiting for? It's free to join. TargetBarter.com gets the things you want without spending cash. That's TargetBarter.com. Insurance, paid vacation, taxes. Having a full-time secretary means you have a lot of things to deal with, besides having an employee. Sick leave, lunch breaks, holidays. And those challenges can change from day to day. Training time, mistakes, family emergencies. A good secretary can be hard to find. What I need is someone who's reliable, efficient, and who can get it done yesterday. What I need is a secretary 24-7. What if you could have a secretary on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week? What if you could dictate letters with a phone call, have them transcribed and back to you within 24 hours? Add to that scanning, word processing, email management, and a whole lot more. Your 24-hour secretary does exist at www.the24hoursecretary.com. If you're an entrepreneur, a small business professional, a corporation, or in the legal or medical fields, the 24-Hour Secretary is your virtual office manager. www.the24hoursecretary.com World Talk Radio Interested in advertising on any of our shows? Please click the advertise link on the homepage or send an email to ads at worldtalkradio.com or you can click on the sponsor this show link on any of the show pages. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Today I'm talking with Mike Vorenberg about the 13th Amendment. Mike, in our first two segments, we talked about the origins of the amendment, uh, how it uh, came to be, how it became uh, not really an issue in the election of 1864, but was seemingly uh, a mandate seemed to be given by the people, at least according to Lincoln, to pass such an amendment. And then you have the uh, fairly short uh, campaign to pass the amendment and then its ratification. One thing I've had people ask me about in the past is the the rumors, the stories that Lincoln exerted himself to get the 13th Amendment through Congress using whatever dirty tricks were necessary, whatever arm-twisting and log-rolling and deal-making 
suddenly he was the old uh, state legislator from Illinois uh, making backroom deals again uh, instead of the, the saintly great emancipator. Is that true? Uh, yes, it is true. He, I mean, you said a few different things there. One oh. is he was back in Illinois being the log roller and so forth. And and that is true, that he knew, of course, how to play that game of politics. Um, one of the interesting things is that as president, he hadn't done it too much in Congress. Um, very rarely had he really gotten uh, down in the dirt with the congressman to uh, directly promise favors and so forth. The things that presidents often do. Uh, this, by the way, this sort of behavior is not, uh, was not illegal, uh, really wasn't even unethical. Uh, and even today, that line between uh, what is legal and uh, what is uh, normal, <laughs> uh, excuse me, what, what is legal and what is illegal, it remains still a little fuzzy, of course, as we're seeing well, with the well, deck. Let's mm -hmm. say if you, if you say I'll appoint your guy postmaster if you vote for my bill, Right. We'd, we'd say that's politics as usual. If you that's say, right. I'll give you an envelope full of $10,000, right. that, that's different. Lincoln's that's different. not doing that, is he? Right. <clears throat> the rumors abounded that he was doing that, or that his agents were promising money. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I found is no, clear, no, no evidence at all that bribes were given. But certainly the rumors were that the bribes were given. In fact, those rumors stuck around long after Lincoln was dead, uh, that he had used that he had uh, people spreading bribe money around. Uh, that didn't happen. But certainly promises were made, uh, certainly promises of patronage, most importantly, or promises to control patronage, a judicial appointment here, a postmaster's office here. And that was politics as usual. Had been politics as usual for as long as the nation existed. And Lincoln knew how to play that game. I should also say that, of course, Lincoln did have other things to do, including overseeing the military side of the war. And uh, so he delegated a lot of this to others, most importantly his Secretary of State, William Henry Seward, who also knew how to play this game as well or better than anyone. And uh, Seward used contacts he had from his days uh, in New York. And so he had some New York lobbyists come down to Washington and operate there. And the other person that Lincoln used was James Ashley, the representative from Ohio who was uh, essentially the the guide of the bill, who were the ones steering it through Congress. And Ashley also uh, made some of these promises on Lincoln's behalf. And that's the way these things tended to work. And I will say that, Link, like I said, Lincoln really didn't get down and dirty with this stuff. Um, there was maybe in one more bill besides this, uh, but, but this was the one that he clearly had the greatest involvement in uh, when he was president. So he, he wanted this passed very badly. He did, and he wanted it passed quickly. If Lincoln had waited uh, to the next session of Congress, uh, he could easily have had this passed. He had the two-thirds majority he needed uh, in the House of Representatives. The measure had already passed through the Senate. And he didn't do that. He wanted it passed sooner rather than later. And that says a lot about Lincoln. Um, it says a lot about what he wanted this measure to be, that he wanted it to come quickly, that he wanted it to be passed by uh, a Congress that had Democrats as well as Republicans. That is, he wanted to use this measure to bring more Democrats on board uh, and, to, and his, to his cause. 
just to clarify, you know, for the listeners, they'll remember, of course, that the Congress that's elected in November 1864, the one that Lincoln says there's a mandate now, that Congress doesn't actually sit for another 13 months that's until right. late 1865. Hmm. So Lincoln is working with the lame duck Congress, the previous He's working Congress. with the lame duck Congress that will be in session from December of 64 through March of 1865. The new Congress, the 39th Congress, would normally come into session in December of that year of 65. Lincoln, as president, has the power to call a special session of that new Congress when he comes into office uh, as sec- in his second term in March of 1865. So that's another thing he could have done. He could have done nothing. He could have waited. And this, if you read the newspapers, that's what some people are expecting that he will do, that he'll uh, take the oath of office uh, in March 1865, and then call Congress into special sessions, just as he called it into special session in 1861 when, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the midst of the secession crisis in the war. But, but he does, he acts immediately with the lame duck Congress to get it through. Right. The, the measure passes, uh, and, and I really enjoyed your description of how that, uh, just how that looked on the floor of the House. Uh, yeah, there's, there's even a sketch of it. Uh, in Harper's Weekly that does it some justice. Yet, according to politicians on the floor and to newspaper uh, reporters there, there was just nothing like it. There were Supreme Court justices who turned out to see the vote. Uh, many of the cabinet, office, uh, cabinet members were there. The galleries were full of men and women. Uh, and it was just an explosion because it went right down to the wire. It was not a vote that people knew how that, that was going to turn out. Um, went right down to, to the wire, um, and it was a truly dramatic moment. You don't get a lot of those on the floor of Congress in terms of votes. This was one of them. And it just exploded as people realized, my God, this really is the end of slavery. And the place erupted for minutes. It, 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 there was so much commotion that they didn't even try to do any more business that day. They just called an immediate recess because it was hopeless to, to try to keep Congress in session. Now, as you say, this, they realized this meant the end of slavery, but there was, of course, one more step, and that was the ratification process. Yes. And this brings up the, the mathematical problem. You need two-thirds or three-quarters uh, of the states to, uh, to ratify but how many states are there in 1865? <laughs> right. Is it three-quarters of the total number of states as they were before secession, or is it three-quarters of the states that were in the Union as it was with the Confederate states out? Uh, this, to us, is a very interesting problem. Uh, Lincoln didn't spend a lot of time on this problem. Lincoln just uh, assumed that it was three-quarters of all the states. Um, he thought that was really important. Of course, he had never said that secession was legitimate anyway. So it was consistent with him to say that um, it had to be three-quarters of all the states. There was a bit of objection to this on the floor of the Congress, but in the end, that that uh, thinking held the day. Now, if you're going to get three-quarters of all the states, and the problem here is you're going to need some Confederate states to act. Yeah, not, not such a that? problem. Not such a problem for Lincoln, the Lincoln administration, because uh, since 1863, they had been... Uh, effectively creating new states, uh, in their view at least, by having these union governments set themselves up in seceded states. Uh, the most famous one of these is in Louisiana. Uh, perhaps the most interesting one is in Virginia. 
that there was actually a union government in Virginia whose seat was in Alexandria. Um, even as Virginia, of course, is, is a seceded state and is uh, manning much of the Confederate army, um, that uh, rump government, rump union government in Virginia, actually votes uh, a, a ratification vote for the 13th Amendment, and it's counted. So that's all Lincoln and Secretary of State Seward, who actually is, the, is, is charged with counting the votes of the states, uh, that's what they do. They simply count these votes of these uh, of some of, of these union governments in the seceded states. No, in one fact, thing the state that puts us over the edge um, is, a, is a southern state. I think it's Georgia. Georgia, I think, yes. Yeah. One thing you didn't mention in the book, I've been curious about, uh, the role of Nevada, which gains its statehood in 1864. Yeah, there's a theory that Lincoln... Uh, expedited the admission of Nevada into the Union to make sure that he had an extra state on board that would ratify the 13th Amendment. Did um, you find any evidence of that? No, not, not specifically. There's an old article about this. Um, it's based on uh, a mis- that article is based on a somewhat misreading of the evidence. Um, what is true is that Lincoln did want to expedite the admission of Nevada. He wanted to expedite the admission of as many new Union states as he could. Uh, Nevada was one. Uh, West Virginia was one. Uh, remember that Lincoln create, helps create West Virginia uh, basically on the same day that the proclamation passes. He creates a new Union state out of a southern uh, seceded state. He wants these states. He's no fool. He knows that each new state will send two new senators and at least a few representatives to Congress. Um, and that's what he really has in mind. Uh, I think he has that more in mind than what these states can do in terms of ratifying an amendment. But it is true uh, that Nevada does play a role in ratifying the amendment. But it's, I, I would not say, as was once said, that that was sort of linchpin on which uh, Nevada's admission to the Union turn, that is, that it was simply a, a calculation to get one more state vote for the amendment. Let, let me uh, skip ahead a hundred and some years here. The 13th Amendment has been overshadowed since its ratification by, in, in terms of, of jurisprudence by the 14th and 15th Amendment, mm-hmm. which, uh, which there are dozens of very important uh, Supreme Court cases dealing with, with those amendments. The 13th Amendment we don't hear much about. Uh, once in a while it pops up in the news. I, I recall in uh, 1995 the state of Mississippi got around to ratifying the 13th Amendment. Yes. Uh, you know, better late than never, I suppose. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, and there was a, a little ceremony about it all. Then you mentioned in your book one of the uh, more recent 20th century uses of the 13th Amendment was uh, in, in, I think it was 1970, the Reserve Clause case in baseball with yeah. Kurt Flood. Yeah, it, it, it was used in uh, labor law, or attempted to be used in labor law, a number of times in the 20th century. The Kurt Flood case was certainly the most famous. You had, after all, it was the nation's pastime. It was baseball. Flood uh, was a African American player um, who wanted uh, to stay where he was, uh, but he had been traded to Philadelphia and didn't want to go to Philadelphia, and so for which he can hardly be blamed. <laughs> that's right. Uh, and uh, it, it was actually a, an organization that was 
notorious for not treating black players well. Um, of course, no organization was as bad was as bad at the, as as my Boston Red Sox when it came to that, unfortunately. But anyway, he didn't want to go to Philadelphia, and he uh, so he sued, and he actually had on his side arguing his case before the Supreme Court, Arthur Goldberg, former Supreme Court justice. So that's no small potatoes. And Goldberg makes an argument partly based on the 13th Amendment. And uh, it was a form of involuntary servitude. Involuntary servitude, right. That is this notion that involuntary servitude was at work. Um, On one hand, you could say, that argument might have special power because Flood was a black person. On the other hand, as Flood himself admitted, this is a bit crazy because Flood was getting paid thousands of dollars. Uh, and whoever heard of, what was it, a $90,000? I think he said a $90,000 A $90,000 a year slave. I think right. that's right out of Flood's autobiography. Um, and it's an interesting issue. Uh, can, can you call someone a slave when they're actually paid money? I thought of it recently because there's an article uh, sort of making its way around the country about this family that wants to sell itself on eBay or is hmm. in the process of selling itself on eBay as effectively servants uh, to the highest bidder. Uh, they'll be servants in, in some resort and do whatever the family tells them to do. Uh, can, can a family sell itself into slavery? Uh, although, of course, this is not really slavery in that they're being paid uh, some money, and obviously getting some good perks. And, and the, the, the force of the law would not be against them uh, in, in trying to keep them in slavery. Yeah. But, but if they signed a contract, that isn't. Can, can you alienate the, the inalienable rights of, of liberty? Uh, right. Uh, yeah, the other manifestations of the 13th Amendment today, um, you don't see many. But it had a great victory in 1968 with a fair housing case. Um, but since then, it hasn't uh, seen much. Legal scholars talk about it a lot. This, the actual federal courts don't do much um, with the 13th Amendment, nor I think if we, if we look at where the court has been the past years and where it's going, it's not likely the 13th Amendment is going to show up much. Um, but an era may come when it shows up more. Well, it may. Uh Without too much time left, uh, I don't want to leave without asking you, uh, what are you working on uh, nowadays? Anything new in the hopper? Yeah, I'm working on the impact of the Civil War on American citizenship. Uh, This is not a study of the 14th Amendment, which is the amendment we usually point to as citizenship. It really is a study of the war and how the war forces people to confront their loyalties and their nationality in a way they never had. Um, And so it involves looking at uh, not just what I've already talked about a bit here, Congress, lawmakers, and so forth, uh, legal theorists, but it involves quite a bit more of looking at actual people and their experiences with the law as they are forced to make a choice. That is, as they are forced to uh, essentially proclaim before a court or before some agent where what what is their nationality or what is their citizenship are they a citizen of north carolina of the confederacy of the union etc well that, that sounds like a very promising project and uh, we'll look forward to seeing it very much uh we are alas out of time mike thanks so much for uh calling in today it's always good to talk to you well thank you jerry this has been this has been fun but we'll do it again soon and thank you all for listening to civil war talk radio